Before we begin, please note that none of the information in this episode constitutes a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Hello, hello. Thanks for being with us and welcome back to Future Proof. We have a fantastic conversation ahead of us today, taking a look back at the year in Bitcoin. I'm Jonathan Bronstein with Financial Advisor IQ, and as always, we are brought to you by Galaxy Fund Management. If this is your first time joining us, Future Proof is focused on digital assets for the modern financial advisor. This is our 12th episode, and if you like it, explore the first 11. You can find them on Financial Advisor IQ or on your favorite podcast player, Apple, Stitcher, Acast, and Spotify, just to name a few. Just search for Future Proof. So here we go. 2020 was a big year for Bitcoin. From high profile investments to regulatory guidance, it has perhaps never felt safer to buy digital assets. As such, the value of Bitcoin has spiked. It's through the roof. It's hitting highs unseen for three years. So what does this mean for investors? Is now the time or are they too late? We have a great panel joining us to discuss this topic today. We are so happy to welcome back Tom Cahill from Beaumont Financial Partners. Beaumont is listed among the Financial Times 300 list of the top RIAs. Tom, how are you today? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks, John. Very good. Glad to hear it. And we're also joined today once again by Steve Kurtz, the head of asset management at Galaxy Digital. Hi, Steve. Hey, everyone. Thank you. All right. Let's get to it. 20 minutes on the clock. Tom, uh, in our first episode, you walked us through how your firm came to invest in Bitcoin, uh, seeing it first and foremost as a hedge in the portfolio, similar to gold. So six months later, has your approach to Bitcoin changed at all? Uh, our approach has not really changed. Um, although with all the uh, positive developments occurring this year, such as like Brian Brooks and the OCC supporting Bitcoin, uh, support from other you know, from former skeptics like Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan and then other well-known investors like Paul Tudor Jones, Stan Druckenmiller, Bill Miller, et cetera, coming out in support of Bitcoin. Um, then you have some big institutions like MicroStrategy and Square, um, you know, using it in their treasury operations as a major investment. Again, very supportive commentary. Um, and more, more recently, the PayPal platform uh, opening up to Bitcoin. These are all, you know, really, really um, giving us, give us more comfort to where, um, you know, we actually, where we started out the year allocating just to our larger sort of higher risk or more risk tolerant clients, we actually uh, changed the allocating to most all clients across the board in limited amounts, given again, all this broader acceptance. So, um, you know, it appears that with all this increased interest and support that this will help diminish volatility as that was the one concern that folks had in general with Bitcoin. So, you know, our approach is definitely, you know, again, broadened where we, have, we really hold it across the board for all clients. Tom, I, you know, talking about your clients, um, certainly that, uh, that PayPal news was big. And, it, uh, and you know, I, I won't say it alone led to the current run-up in value, but, but certainly that news was a big part of it. And Bitcoin's been getting a lot more press. So are your clients asking more about it? Or are you getting more questions? 
Yeah, definitely. Clients are asking more questions given, as you mentioned, all the media attention Bitcoin has been receiving. Um, generally, everyone's pretty excited about the positive news and the fact that they're participating in the recent price appreciation. So the conversations are actually quite easy. <laughs> um, but folks want to know if we're concerned you know, about all the notoriety. And, and we generally explain that we think this is different than 2017's rapid rise, given how much broader, again, the institutional support is and just the general increase in activity since the fall in 2018. Um, so we do think that, again, this, this general increase in, in, and it's being used more broadly institutionally, I mean, in, internationally as well. So we think that the, the combination of all this support um, sort of lessens the, our concerns about a repeat of 2018. And that's, and so we, we spent, you know, the clients seem to be buying into that. And, and again, we're, we're having a hard time actually keeping some of our more uh, enthusiastic clients from buying too much, um, to just, just given those concerns. But uh, these, are, these are really high-class problems. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Steve, let's, uh, let's talk about this, uh, this past year. I mean, we, we've seen it go from uh, below 4,000 in February, Bitcoin specifically, to past 19,000, know, hitting all-time highs. How, how is it, is this the most exciting period that you've seen? I mean, you've been around Bitcoin for a while. Is it, uh, you know, get, get, give us a little of, of that veteran presence on this. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, it has been an interesting year. Uh, there, there's no question about it. I, I think the, the excitement question is, is an interesting one. I, I certainly think it's been the most exciting year for Bitcoin. Um, but if you, uh, if you think about why, um, it's not immediately obvious. If you look at Google Trends and you compare today's Bitcoin price and, and the Google Trend activity of that relative to 2017, when we were last at 19,000, you would see a, a huge spike in Google Trends interest in 2017. And today you see that far more muted. And I actually think that's really exciting because what it means is there's less retail mania and there's more institutions in the space. Um, what we've seen has been a very clear handoff from um, you know, a, a less robust um, buyer base into uh, people coming into the space for the first time with a fresh view, with a long-term view. Um, there will always be a fascination with Bitcoin's price and with the volatility. So yes, we were down at 4K, now we're up at 18K. But one thing that's really become clear to people is that the price, when you look at something like Bitcoin is sort of just an output. If you go back to basic econ 101, there's supply and there's demand. And Bitcoin is a limited supply asset. And as you have the demand picture start to develop and these new areas coming into the market, um, the price is really just an output of that. And so when people get so excited about PayPal or Paul Tudor Jones or the corporate treasuries that have come into Bitcoin, um, what they're really saying is, you know, the supply side, this is a signal that the demand side is going up. This is an asset that's going to be a bigger footprint, a bigger part of the world. And that's where we at Galaxy get really excited because we've always viewed this as a long term three, five year discussion, not a one month or a certain price at a moment in time style discussion. Okay. So it sounds to me that you're, you know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but, but the way I'm understanding it, you're, you're describing 17 as being something of a bubble and that this is maybe a little bit more real with a little bit more of a foundation. Is, is that, is that a, a fair take on it? And, and, are there lessons that can be learned from 2017 and applied right now? Yeah, and, and I think that's a really great question because if you mark the price relative to the 2017 and 2020 moments, um, it looks the same, right? 
And I think when you look under the hood, it's extremely different. Um, the spot liquidity today is far more, more robust. You're talking about multiple billions of regulated volume today that was nowhere near that in 2017, let alone the regulatory side. Um, the, the regulatory environment more broadly has evolved dramatically as we've talked about on this podcast uh, many times. The products, the service providers are better. The adoption story is better. Um, and, and most importantly, probably was the catalyst of COVID that gave people a reason to really care and to focus on the macroeconomic side, the inflation side, the digitization story. And so it, while the price is similar, uh, I, I would actually argue Bitcoin is probably de-risked now at current levels relative to where we were 10,000 points ago. And that sounds crazy because that's not how you would view a credit investment or a value investment, but Bitcoin's neither of those things. Bitcoin is a network oriented investment. And so what you see after this last run up is a foundation of the network and where the network growth is going. And that's why you're excited about the price today. You wouldn't have had those proof points 10,000 points ago um, when, you, when you didn't have these guys stepping in. So I, I do think it's very different than 2017. I think um, the lessons learned are, are simple. Uh, you, you need to be invested, you need to be educated. You shouldn't trade, you should buy and hold uh, and you should take a, a long-term measured approach to this uh, because it is ultimately moving in a clear direction but that's never been a straight line. And it's still not there in terms of it being a full, you know, uh, gold-like asset class, but it's going to continue to chip away uh, over the next few years is our view. Sure. Tom, does that, uh, is that what you're telling your clients? Yeah, that's pretty consistent with the messaging we've been giving the clients too. I mean, I think all those, all, all these positive developments um, have really built a, a better base, a bigger, again, support um, for Bitcoin. And, and again, all the think about how hard it was to, to, to access it in 2017 versus all the different custodial platforms that are available today and, and how improved they are as well. And, and just people, I think, are much more comfortable buying and, and holding Bitcoin too today versus then. So those, these are all really, again, very, very, um, very positive attributes that are easy to transmit to clients and give them comfort. So, Tom, a lot's happened over the past year. And, uh, you know, when we first spoke uh, on the very first episode of Future Proof, um, the, uh, or since then, I should say, the, the, the government has given banks permission to custody assets. We've seen major investments from the likes of Paul Tudor Jones and Square. Um, and PayPal, you know, as we've discussed already, ha has announced its plans to allow users to buy and sell on the app. And, and more than that, they, they've rolled it out. So, which of those do you think is most significant? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there again, Steve alluded to, and and I did as well. There's, there's been many, you know, significant developments this year, but I think that that the recent PayPal announcement seems to be probably the most exciting, you know, development for Bitcoin. Given that PayPal offers, I think, over 300 to 350 million customers who can now buy and hold Bitcoin with just a few clicks. Um, this really dramatically increases the, the user audience, sort of the, the awareness um, for Bitcoin. And I think provides a, a massive boost to potential access and investment in Bitcoin. So those are all, I mean, it's hard to argue that, that, that again, for a retail users, so many people are aware or, or use PayPal and, and are familiar with it, that it just sort of gives, again, a, a confidence or, or credibility to Bitcoin to, to a much bigger user base. So that, that that's really been a, a key development. Steve, what do you think? What, what's, uh, what, what was the biggest uh, of, of all the news this year? Wow. Well, I, 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 think, 
I think for sure PayPal is is up there. Um, one that will will I think ultimately be a very important piece of news that's less um, less obvious is this corporate treasury adoption of Bitcoin. To be to be candid with you, I wouldn't have expected, um, you know, and, and certainly didn't talk about in, in this series uh, corporate treasuries as buyers of Bitcoin. And I think it's a great lesson in what open source software can can do and what it can become. The world is gonna engage with Bitcoin as the world chooses to engage with Bitcoin. So when you look at, um, I think it's close to $500 million between two public com two companies, MicroStrategy and Square. Um, and, and then you think about all of the behind the scenes conversations that are happening with other uh, corporate treasuries. And again, this is not the investment portfolios of these companies. This is holding Bitcoin alongside US dollars. And I, I think, you, you really start to ask yourself, well, why are they doing that? And, and part of it is probably the dollar story that we've talked about and inflation and the concerns about that. But the other part of it is actually a much bigger part of the growth story for Bitcoin. And it's the companies that are doing this first are tech companies and they are they spend their days building products that are, that are forward thinking, that are about the integration of technology into our lives and, and where the internet's going. And so having a, 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 an asset that is of the internet um, as part of their core holdings is strategic that way. And I think they see how Bitcoin is starting to integrate with the payment rails and how digital assets across just, uh, not just Bitcoin are, are becoming part of the fabric and they're, they're planning for that world. Uh, and they have a unique lens because of their operating businesses to see some of that and pull it forward today um, with a move like that. And that that confidence that that gives the market, I mean, that's the that's the stickiest of, of buyer bases, right? If, if you're thinking about it as a base value on which your entire company, which you, which is everything, to, you know, if, if you're if you're an entrepreneur or a CEO or you know your company is everything, um, and and feeling comfortable making a bet like that, uh, I think it speaks volumes about the ways in which Bitcoin can and will plug in to apps, to wallet technology, to uh, the digital infrastructure, uh, not just where the internet is today, but where it's going. We, I mean, there's two companies that, that you named that are doing that. By the end of 2021, you know, do, 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 do you see this catching on? Do you see us talking about 20 companies that are doing that? Or do you think this is going to be, okay, let's see how it goes for those companies before others jump in. I think um, I think that generated a lot of interest. I think there's a lot of conversations that are happening. I, I think for the corporate treasury uh, uh, adoption box, but also with other adoption boxes, um, 2021 is going to be about um, that foundation growing in each one. More, more hedge funds, right? A broader retail footprint, a broader corporate treasury footprint, um, certainly a broader engagement with the US wealth market, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast. What I think is interesting is that the supply demand dynamics are so tight because of how Bitcoin is structured. You don't need all of those to scale to have a really healthy uptrade for Bitcoin's price. If all four of those happen, if you were 20 corporate treasuries and if you were you know, 1,000 RIAs and you were 100 hedge funds uh, and Square and PayPal kept selling Bitcoin to their customers, Bitcoin would be at a price that it would be silly that I would tell you now as a forecast, you would say that doesn't make any sense. But again, price is just the output. And so I do think there's gonna be more adoption in each of them, but I don't think that um, any one box is a prerequisite to the price being able to move higher. Sure. Well, let's talk about that price moving higher because um, recently uh, I read that um, 
uh, Mike Novogratz, someone that you know very well, um, was saying that uh, 60,000 could be in sight for, for 2021. So, um, you know, I, I always, I, I come back to this with you a lot. So forgive me for being repetitive, but, you know, we talk about the idea of this being digital gold and, and an inflation hedge. And then we talk about, well, it was 4,000 in February and it could be 60,000 sometime next year. Um, so why, you know, is, are people buying into Bitcoin right now for the wrong reasons when they hear something like that? Or, or is that the right reason? Is the value proposition on Bitcoin a little bit different than maybe what, you know, we've been talking about? I think it's, I think it's multiple different layers of that. I think the value proposition is more apparent. And I think the, the catalyst of COVID and the macro problems crystallizing more clearly leaves leaves investors and, and allocators of all shapes and sizes in a position to have to try to find solutions for that. Um, so that, that is certainly part of it. Uh, but, I, but I also think that, um, you know, the, the Bitcoin price, and I don't want to say it's a distraction because that's not, that's not totally fair. I, I think that the analog to gold is useful in the sense that you still have a framing. So Bitcoin at, 12, uh, at, at um, 350 billion relative to gold at 12 trillion, um, it is completely logical to say that Bitcoin could be 10% of gold. Uh, and that would equate to a $1.2 trillion market cap. And that would still be, uh, you know, three or four times where we are today, right? And so that, that, that roughly gets you to that fifty dollars or $60,000 price point. I, I, I think that, um, you know, that's, that's very possible. I think it's, it's not a crazy number. Um, I think that, um, you know, the, the next few years are going to be interesting. There still will be volatility around the price, um, but the, the core reasons for holding Bitcoin are more clear. And, and what's also interesting from my, my seat is, you asked earlier, what's different now versus 2017. In 2017 or 2018, we were having first conversations with people about Bitcoin. Those that are stepping into the market now aren't just learning about Bitcoin today. They've spent the last three years doing the work. And so that's why when you see 4,000 going to 19,000 on the way to potentially something like 60,000, it doesn't make sense unless you understand that every investment committee has already learned about Bitcoin. Um, the, the hedge funds have already studied Bitcoin and they've been waiting. They've been thinking about it. What, when will we do this? How will we do this? Where will it fit? Those are not, those are not things they telegraph publicly, but it's the behind the scenes conversations that are, are prerequisite to making that investment. And so when the barriers fall down for one, uh, in any category, uh, an endowment, right? It, it, it's not because necessarily that's the most forward-thinking endowment or the only endowment. It's actually because the barriers to entry have actually allowed that endowment to express the view. And if one endowment can express the view institutionally because it's safe from a custody perspective or whatever, others can as well. And my point is they've already done that work. So that can get you excited about more of them following the, uh, the early movers in each category. And again, therefore the price is just an output of that. So I don't think that's a crazy number. I hope I don't eat my words on that, uh, but I guess we'll, we'll talk about it in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, would you, uh, would you sign up for Bitcoin at 60,000? Yeah. I mean, I think um, there's lots of reasons why um, it could get there and it's just like the adoption. I mean, generally speaking, I think there's, Charles Schwab put out uh, data about who are the owners, you know, at Charles Schwab or, or users, and they did some, you know, customer surveys. And it's really, I mean, my, I'm a little older than you guys, 
but there aren't many people of my demographic that are necessarily Bitcoin investors, but the millennials certainly seems like the, the participation percentage is pretty high. And I think we just scratched the surface as Steve said. So if you start to see greater and greater acceptance, there's pretty good arguments on this, this notion called the S-curve adoption that this could really become much, much broadly, more broadly held and really push that price to $40,000, $60,000, really without probably a lot of effort. Um, and now we've got, as Steve said, the institutions really stepping in in a big way. And as that becomes more widespread, I think there's more support. So yeah, we're, we're, we're thinking 40 to 50,000 in the next year or two. That, that, that's not far-fetched at all. Well, Tom, I do have to ask because I, I included it in my introduction and I think that makes me legally obligated. Um, I had, uh, you know, with Bitcoin uh, where it is today versus where it was earlier this year. And, you know, knowing that there is certainly some volatility, I'm sure you have clients saying, wow, I, re I really wish I'd gotten in sooner um, and wondering whether or not, you know, is now the time? Did I miss my chance? You know, so how are you talking them through that? Because certainly if you know that Bitcoin at 60,000 is going to happen, well, then sure, you know, that then it's easy. But um, I think, you know, we, we don't know the future. We never know the future. So how are you talking through, you know, those buying decisions with your clients right now? Yeah, I, we um, generally start with a modest allocation in general. So if you're having one or 2% put in, it gives you the flexibility where if there is a pullback for some reason or something some, on a regulatory basis goes against Bitcoin, it drops back to 12,000. Then you step back in with another percent and just sort of dollar cost down. So we just explain to people that, yeah, at this level, you don't have to, you know, buy in big, just, just ease your way in and, and we'll add to it and we see dips. And if we don't see dips, then we'll just keep adding anyway. I mean, we'll, we just want to get a modest allocation. Um, so we're not making a big bet anyways. People don't seem to be too concerned about the timing where we do have hope or expectations for a much higher price a year, two years down the road. So that hasn't been a troublesome conversation, honestly. Okay. I, uh, that makes sense to me. Um, okay, we are uh, we are just about out of time. I did want to uh, ask one final question to both of you. Uh, quick answers, if possible. When the history of Bitcoin is written, how is 2020 remembered? Is it is it a milestone year like it feels like it is right now, or is it ultimately a footnote overshadowed by 2021 or, or whatever is yet to come? Um, Tom, and then Steve, you can have the final word on that. I, th I think 2020 will be a noteworthy year from the standpoint of all these really, really uh, unique developments in Bitcoin's history that have occurred this year. So I, I think it will be remembered as a, as a milestone year because it's just been, as we've ex expanded on, there's just so much support building that hasn't been there in the last 11 or 12 years. So that is exciting. And I think that will be notable in the future. Yeah, I agree. I think 2020 is the year that Bitcoin became a macro asset. Um, and I think that's also because 2020 was the year that the macro changed and, and so much of COVID and we're not through COVID and it's horrible and, and, and obviously it's a terrible health crisis. Um, it has had a, a profound impact on, on how people think about generational uh, wealth, but also other aspects of generational um, you know, considerations, and it's certainly affected how people are thinking about their portfolios. And so things like global debt, things like digitization, um, things like generational transfer are all top of mind. And I think that's just 
put Bitcoin squarely at the center of the macro discussion, which it was not before and I think always will be now in the future. Okay, gentlemen, we're out of time, but thank you both so much. Great conversation. Really do appreciate it. We can only hope that 2021 is truly as exciting as 2020 was. Listeners, on our next webcast, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about 2021. We're going to be joined by Paul Capelli to take a look at what to expect next year, what's coming down the pike. You're not going to want to miss that one. This podcast is a production of Financial Advisor IQ, a service of the Financial Times, and is brought to you by Galaxy Fund Management. My name is Jonathan Bronstein, and I produced and edited this podcast. Our music is written and performed by Oliver Mack. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening and have a great day.